Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com. Movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley and I'm super excited because it's Scary Movie Month. Happy October, everyone. Happy Scary Movie Month. Today I'm joined for our very first Scary Movie Month podcast by the man who's making ghost noises. He's he's good for nothing and bad in bed. It's the <laughs> it's the podcast that creeps in your window and bites off your toes. Oh my gosh, it's JB everyone. Ah, uh, this is my month. I've been waiting. I've been waiting patiently for October to be here. Yeah. We're now recording this Fern Leaves and My Enemies. <laughs> We're recording this on day 2 of October, so we haven't we don't have a ton of October behind us, but hopefully we've We've seen some stuff, and we've got some reviews to oh. read for the Scary Movie Challenge. I've seen some stuff. Yeah. I've seen some stuff. <laughs> if you're unfamiliar with the Scary Movie Challenge, uh, it's a thing we do at F This Movie where every day in October when you watch a scary movie, you go to fthismovie.com, and you leave a seven-word review. And then we read some of those on the show, which we're going to do in just a minute. But I forgot to announce that we're talking about Phantom of the Paradise uh, for our Scary Movie Month debut at F This Movie. Yes, because um, I was hooking up a new TV to streaming services, and there's a free channel on my new cable, which I think they just got rid of. It was part of the Disney negotiation. For like five weeks, whenever you tried to tune into ABC or um, ESPN or any of these Disney channels, uh, the fine folks at Spectrum had a screen up that said, we're sorry, we're currently in negotiations. And both sides were squeezing the other shoes. And finally, it was uh, decided and fixed. So God, God be jubilant, I can watch Jeopardy again. But I think part of the agreement is, if Spectrum wanted Disney, they had to drop the Fox movie channel. Okay. Which was free. Let's put quotation marks around free. And they would show movies without commercials. So for about three months, they showed Phantom of the Paradise every other night. Nice. And I would watch it because I don't sleep. And then I'm hooking up the new TV and I'm watching Phantom of the Paradise again. Or maybe I'm streaming it. And I thought to myself, you know, I know what tremendous esteem Patrick holds its movie in. We've never talked about it. Very true. On the uh, podcast, and it's really something. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll get to it in just a little bit. First, we will uh, read some of our favorite seven word reviews of the month thus far. Again, keeping in mind it's only the second day, but you guys have been killing it so far with some great seven word reviews. Jay Bones, take it away. Yeah, we got almost a hundred the first day. That was yeah. terrific. And uh, thanks to uh, marathons and fathom events. And Blu-rays, um, I think I logged a career high on the first day. Nice. I'm very proud of myself. Um, I'm not only proud of myself, I'm insufferable. My first seven-word <laughs> review um, comes from friend of the site, J.M. Vargas. He watched the Stuart Gordon film Dolls. And his review is, if Megan and Annabelle smoked crack together. I had that one, so I will take it out. Uh, I like a lot because a couple years ago, I wrote a column about it. Um, I got to tour a special effects lab 
because my wife did a solid for a famous person at a con. And the one thing we were not allowed to photograph was the Annabelle doll in the corner because we were told the studio was very sketchy about that. Yeah, I have tried to watch and like those movies, but I'm not there yet. Um, you know, Brendan, sometimes I think oh, um, I, I'm too old to enjoy modern horror films. Although, as I said, I really loved the first half hour of Talk to Me. I really did. And then it sort of lost me. But um, as we'll discover when we talk about what we've seen lately, uh, recently Rob reviewed a new horror film. And uh, I sat down and watched it and loved it. So maybe there's either hope for me or modern horror. Yeah. Um, all right. Friend of the site, Miko Vinica, Vinica, who has been counting our seven word reviews as he does every year because he is a hero of the people, says of 2005's Boy Eats Girl, this comedy takes itself way too seriously. And I, too, have a seven word review from our friend Miko. Um, he reviewed personal favorite Dick Shark <laughs> and reviewed it in the following manner. It's way too long. So's the movie. Oh, hey, now two people have seen Dick Shark. John Murphy says of Pearl, a scarecrow gets more action than me. <laughs> Brian Biddle uh, reviews personal favorite Bride of Frankenstein from 1935, and his review reads, A hiss, no kiss, averted wedding bliss. Proof so that extra Extra credit for rhyming. Proof that we've been doing these seven-word reviews for a long time because now we just all have the same taste because I also had that one, so I took it off my list. Uh, Frank Levesque of I Am Not a Serial Killer. No, but you're seriously trending that way. <laughs> Mac McIntyre on Cocaine Bear, the most fun I've had in a theater this year. So that's what's in Yogi's picnic basket. <laughs> Lindsay Wilkins of Jacob's Ladder. Hallucination has everything. Angels, demons, lizard erections. Um, that was my best, for, Stefan. Thank you for doing, yeah. doing the stage directions instead of reading <laughs> Um Adam O. on the original Mummy from Universal Pictures. Nothing says ancient Egypt like Swan Lake. Marcus Killerby of Saw X. Best 10th installment not set in space. That one nearly made my list. And some other anonymous wag on Twitter last week suggested we should all pronounce the name of that film, Socks. I like it. Like we're from Boston and we're right. wearing That That film is Socks. Those are some wicked fucking Socks, kid. I'm going to get some Socks and then go have some Duncan, man. <laughs> Ross reviews Dracula's daughter from 1936 with a thought I think we've all shared, especially at the end of Scary Movie Month. Only have one hour free? Universal Monsters. I did it this morning. Uh, I have a Ross who watched Psycho 1998 and says, Patrick made me a believer in recycling. Yeah, I'm not there yet. Although you showed it recently. I did. It was a smash cut screening last a December. Smash cut. 
And yeah. what was the audience reaction like? There was not a big audience. And I don't know, because the only person I talked to afterwards was Adam. And I think he already likes it. And is anyone else um, taking my advice and cl- and calling the film Clouds and Cars? Not so far. No, Clouds and Cows. Right. Clouds and Cows. Friend of the site, Joel Edmondson. Edmiston. Reviews the recent talk to me. In the following manner, I'm going to laugh. These damn kids and their hand stuff. (laughs) Hold on. I got to take that one off my list as well. Okay. Uh, Ty's videotape of Christine. What I imagine Tesla drivers are like. And I'm holding up the post-it note. I had that one as well. And my final seven word review again. F this movie. People keep leaving reviews. They're endlessly entertaining. And they make the month. Jeremy Wicket reviews the original 1931 Dracula and says, Dracula, fuck, everybody just has mirrors now? (laughs) Uh, Hold on, I'm taking it off. Okay. Uh, Angela Hager of It Follows. Great. Now I'm afraid of people walking. Lauren B. says of Faust, 1994, the only Faust with puppet sex, guaranteed. (laughs) <laughs> Mac McIntyre of the pit, which he clearly watched with our commentary because this is a reference to our commentary. Yankovic pit me with your best shot. Uh, and finally, uh, Sonia Mansfield, who celebrates a birthday today, the day we're recording this says of the exorcist 1973 parenting tip 12 is a tough age. And that nearly made my list. And I'm guessing she saw it last night at the fathom event. Or at four in the afternoon, if she was lucky, none of the theaters around here are showing the four o'clock. Come on, guys. I'm old. Four o'clock is so (laughs) much better than seven o'clock. If you haven't seen it in a theater, you have one or two more chances. The day this podcast drops, Fathom Events will be showing it in theaters nationwide, either at four or seven at a theater near you check it out because I was at that screening last night and it was very interesting. Uh, It was very crowded. I think 50 or 60 people were in my screening and it was very interesting to see how they reacted. No one brought kids. Thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to take the 12 year old. Okay, Martha, it's about time she sees this. And there was no nervous laughter or tipsy hipsterism. Nice. In fact, I got the feeling that because the film is so old, that now people are sort of viewing it like it's behind glass as a museum exhibit. Like an Annabelle doll. (laughs) And no pictures. (laughs) Um, That they're not experiencing it. They're looking at it as an object that really scared people 50 years ago. Um, But that's just my take, because if anything... I was reacting to things that I had never reacted to before, uh, specifically uh, Ellen Burstyn's and Linda Blair's relationship at the beginning of the film. It seems really real and honest and documentary-like. And the fact that I think the shocking stuff is still, I mean, I know we're really hip in 2023, but the stuff that's meant to shock you, it's honestly shocking. I mean, come on. Um. But that was wonderful. Thank you, Fathom Events, for showing it. And they had a nice little tribute to 
Billy Friedkin at the beginning, because of course, when they announced the schedule, he was still alive. Right. And they sort of paid their respects and had a little thing about his career. And it was very nice that they did that. I thought. Very nice. If you guys want to hear uh, another William Friedkin tribute, go back and listen to the podcast that JAB and I did a few weeks ago where we talked about his films. Um, next week, Fathom Events is doing House of a Thousand Corpses for the yeah. 20th anniversary, and that's got Sunday screenings and Wednesday screenings. Um, I don't think I've seen The Exorcist in over 20 years, the last time I saw it was when it was re-released in theaters as the version you've never seen. Which is the version they're showing this week. Oh, for real? Yeah. That's kind of a cheat. It's real easy to tell them apart. And I would argue... Because this one has all the CGI job of the hut. <laughs> and uh, Satan shoots first. Um, <laughs> that I actually prefer the theatrical cut. Because I think it's a little leaner. I understand I think most people do why they put a lot of the stuff back and Friedkin's playing around with putting Captain Howdy wherever he can. Um, the one thing that makes sense that uh, Blady Blady pointed out at some point is that the theatrical cut, as it stands, there's a scene where the where the mom says, "Just let's do what the doctor says and keep taking your pills," and the theatrical cut doesn't have the scene before that that explains that the doctor has put Reagan on Ritalin. So that doesn't make any sense, but there's a whole lot more medical tests and there's a whole lot more talking. And um, I tend to agree with Friedkin because on one of the special features of one of this films, a thousand home video releases, the two men actually argued about that scene on the steps that Blatty wanted reinstated. And Friedkin said, it's, it's unnecessary. It's unnecessary for the two of them to debate this in the middle of the exorcism. So I think everyone should go see the Fathom event this week. But if you uh, bend my arm behind my back, I picked the theatrical version, which the new 4K disc lets you choose. It contains both. Yeah, I would think if they're celebrating the 50th anniversary that they should have shown the theatrical version. But that's just me. Yeah, and it's it's fairly easy to tell because the last time I looked, the first shot of the version you've never seen is different than the oh, first wow. shot of the theater. So it's it's from the very beginning, you can tell. Um, what else have you seen besides The Exorcist? Well, I'll tell you, um, at Rob DiCristino's suggestion in his wonderful review, I checked out No One Will Save You, which I thought was sort of amazing and really, really entertaining and thought-provoking. And then, as Rob himself said, why didn't this get a theatrical release? I'd, did they consider it too small? Because yeah, I'm sure. It, it's, it's, it very much seems like a, a, a elongated Twilight Zone episode, but there's uh, jump scares and there's special effects, and I think there's... A, a quality of production that um so so i, my I think uh, i think a caitlin deaver not yet a big enough star even though she's great and b i think people would have asked for their money back you're kidding i think so because the narrative is so small or because what's sort of left unresolved at the end i think it has the whole I don't know if this is a spoiler or not. I think it 
I think it's because of the lack of dialogue. Okay. I didn't because pay 15 bucks to see a silent movie. I love Rob's last review, which was this is currently streaming on Hulu because no one in Hollywood knows what they're <laughs> doing anymore. But my question became, and again, I'm not the biggest fan of modern horror. Why does Talk to Me get a theatrical release and is still playing in my neighborhood? My God. And No One Will Save You gets no theatrical release? I don't get it. A24 knows what they're doing, and Disney is kind of floundering at the moment. Well, obviously, I'm glad that people are getting a chance to see it, and it wasn't turned into one of those tax write-off things. Right. Um, The star of No One Will Save You, where have I seen her before? She's in a lot of stuff. She was on um, Dope Sick. She's in Booksmart. She's one of the two girls in Booksmart. That's right. After we saw it, Jan looked it up, and we were big fans of Dope Sick. Yeah. Although now there's a competing um, OxyContin series, another streaming service. It's called Painkiller. It's on Netflix. We watched it, and the two can coexist. I mean, there's a lot of overlap, but like having as somebody who watched both, I didn't find the second one to be just a rehash of the first. I agree. I, of the two, I preferred Dope Sick. As do I. For a number of reasons. But might have even preferred the HBO documentary about yeah. uh, Purdue Pharma to be superior. But that's just me. Um, as people who visit the site know, because this dropped yesterday, uh, my wife and I got to go to the Corman tribute at the Arrow Theater last weekend. Arrow. And it was amazing. And it was for of Roger Corman's films and the filmmakers themselves were there and it ended in a panel discussion, which was just amazing for any number of reasons. Uh, If you're curious and you haven't read it yet, go back and that column dropped yesterday and it was a great beginning um, to scary movie month. Although the Corman film they chose was the Raven which sort of makes sense because it's everyone involved in that film just fooling around. But if you really want to make a case for Corman, maybe you don't pick the film that was primarily made because I think Boris Karloff owed him a couple extra. <laughs> um, I, I like the Raven, but I could see what you say in the column where like the pace is slow, especially it should have gone like second maybe because it's coming after three films that are very, very peppy. And so to play it last is kind of a mistake. It's just canoodling. Yes. I suggested three other Corman films that would have worked mostly because they're better films. Sure. Um, But you're right. The Raven would have worked better had it been first. Um, Last night I got to see the exorcist on a big screen and that's a good thing. No nervous laughter like there was when I originally saw the version you'd never seen. Lots of laughter of teenagers protecting themselves against something that was pushing their buttons. And then uh, when A24 released Stop Making Sense to IMAX, I got tickets to that. In fact, at Universal City Walk, I think I got the last four tickets in the room and it was weeks before. It was like, maybe I should get our tickets. Um, it's currently playing in regular movie theaters, uh, which made the sentient candy dish Mr. Pumpy today wonder if it was a sin. 
because he wants to see Stop Making Sense in a movie theater. But it's October, and that's not a scary movie. Maybe scary because of the way David Byrne wound up treating his bandmates in the years that followed. But uh, do we take two hours off and risk a screening that's not scary to see something during October? Is that allowed? I I would say yes. Uh, one, because that suit is so terrifyingly big. But also because I have to... I have to host a screening of Batman this week, and that's yeah. not a scary movie, so I'm going to have to do it. Well, it's Batman's more gothic than Stop Making Sense. I suppose. Da, 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 da. <laughs> uh, one thing I will say, <clears throat> if anyone's looking for a recommendation, uh, they hired Jerry Harrison of the band to redo the soundtrack, and what they did to the sound is amazing. And this is a film and a record that I'm very familiar with. And it's something to see. Um, If anything, it made us remember just what a great documentary it was. And if you went to the IMAX screening, for which they charged way too much, man, was there a premium. You want to see it in IMAX? That'll be 35 bucks. Holy cow. So I started comparison shopping at other IMAX screens. Uh -uh -uh Uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. It's at $35 everywhere. But the bonus you got is a live interview with the four of them that night from the Toronto Film Festival. They beamed it to a satellite or something. And they were all talking about how special the movie was because of the relationship that the musicians have with each other, which is certainly true. Back then, they were really getting along. But no one mentioned maybe it's one of the greatest concert films ever made because every song is killer. No one mentioned that, my God, these songs are just great pop songs or funk songs in some cases. Yeah. And then um, when Dave Byrne takes a break, Tom Tom Club gets to do a song. It's terrific. Two things. One, we did a podcast on it years ago that people should go back and seek yeah. out now that the movie is in the zeitgeist again. Two. I would like to add, I would like to add one thing to our podcast that I didn't know back then. Okay. Since the podcast dropped, Chris Franz has written a book. And it's very entertaining. And the most entertaining thing I'm paraphrasing is, do you like cocaine? We like cocaine. (laughs) And if you're watching Stop Making Sense, David Byrne and I are doing a lot of it. Oh, my gosh. That's interesting. Watching the film through that lens, it's like, it's amazing what sort of energy those two have. Yeah. Um, The other thing I was going to say is that this month, you know, Taylor Swift has her concert film coming out and it's going to play on IMAX screens. And it was just announced today or yesterday. Beyonce is doing something very similar where she's bypassing traditional distribution and just doing what Taylor Swift did, making a deal directly with the theaters. Um, is this between Stop Making Sense and the Taylor Swift and Beyonce films? Is this a sign of things to come in terms of concerts have become prohibitively expensive. Tickets are becoming harder and harder to get thanks to resellers. I mean, our daughter wants to go see Taylor Swift. We can't, she wants to go see Olivia Rodrigo. We can't. Um, So is this the next best thing? And are we going to see more of this? As a business model, I really applauded Taylor Swift because I remember when she was at soldier field, 
hundreds, if not thousands of people camped out on the lawn in front of Soldier Field to just hear it. Yeah. Clearly the demand was there. And I think doing the concert tour and selling out every venue and she could have sold out a lot more and not announcing that it would be in theaters was smart. And now you have a second chance, as they used to say, at popular prices. And certainly we have theaters that are still empty because not everyone has gone back to the movies since COVID. So it seems like a perfect match. And I would argue, not having had front row seats to Taylor Swift, what you're going to get in the movie theater, I believe that's October 13th that it opens somewhere around there. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, what you're going to get in the movie theater is going to be a a much better seat than you would have right. got at Soldier Field. Yeah. I think it's interesting that they see the revenue screen of a movie theater as opposed to just uh, letting it be shown on HBO. Right, right. Which was, I mean, in fact, that's what David Byrne did with American Utopia. It right. premiered, um, the Spike Lee film premiered on HBO. Yeah. Um, anything else that you saw? I I think that's it. I've been very okay. busy. Yeah. The, um, the theater by me, which almost closed, it was only open on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. And something happened and it got a new shot at life. And now it's open seven days a week and they're advertising the lowest prices in Ventura. Nice. So the, the tickets are cheapest. Every Wednesday on their own, they do a classic screening. And that's the same night as Fathom, so you have to decide. But last week was To Kill a Mockingbird, and this week is Shaun of the Dead. And how about that for a scary movie month double feature? To Kill a Mockingbird and Shaun of the Dead. The horror of racism, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the horror of zombies. Mm -hmm. All on the big screen at popular price. (laughs) I like it. Uh, They showed Clue. In December, they're showing Citizen Kane in 2001, and you would applaud this, because I'm thinking of Scary Movie Night and the night of your birthday. Um, All of the trailers and the Coca-Cola ads and the Please Be Quiet things are from the past. They're old. In fact, you know that... They show that before... Have I told you this before? No. They're... They're leaning into nostalgia. Uh, Before To Kill a Mockingbird, they showed the famous trailer from Citizen Kane. And I think they're going to show The Sting in 2001. And it's a nice place to go on Wednesday night. And it's only six bucks. We do uh, vintage trailers before Smash Cut screenings. We show the trailers for what's coming up for Smash Cut. But then Mike Schindler, who puts the trailers together, always picks out three or four trailers that like would have shown with the movie that we're seeing. So for the upcoming, the fun house, it'll be, here's the trailers for smash cut and then some like vintage Coke ads and stuff. And then here are some other trailers from 1981 that might have run with the fun house. So maybe at some point before I die, I'll make it to a smash cut screening and I'll get to see this wonderful stuff. I hope so. Um, I got a couple things that I could talk about. Uh, we watched, insidious the red door which you liked which i okay to be fair when i posted something on twitter which no one should ever do because 
strangers <laughs> strangers will jump in to insult you rather than hear you out on a movie um I hadn't finished watching the movie and, and the middle dips, it sags big time in the middle. I think it redeems itself by the end and becomes kind of a touching father son story. It, it, it's a little heavy on like horror as metaphor for trauma, which there's been a lot of lately and I'm a little bit over it. Um, But I thought there was a lot of really interesting stuff in it. I thought Patrick Wilson did a pretty good job as a first time director. Um, I like how they resolved the story. I'm not like a big insidious head, but I do like those movies more than most of the conjuring and it's ilk. Uh, my, I prefer the insidious movies. Um, there's a really good scene inside an MRI machine. Uh yeah. Okay, now that mean that means I'll either have to I'll either have to see it or I'll have to avoid <laughs> it. Oh my god. Um yeah, I liked it more than I expected to because it has been mostly panned by critics, but I probably didn't like it as much as I did when I tweeted that. Okay. Yeah. Um uh on the flip side is another movie that I watched that I should not have. And that is a movie that played in theaters for like one night before going to VOD. And it is a one joke movie called Slother House, which is about a a killer sloth who Um, is taken in by a sorority and begins to kill off sorority girls. And clearly they started with the title and worked backwards. The sloth puppet is like kind of funny in a couple shots, but I just kept waiting for it to have any inspiration and it doesn't. The kills are nothing. It doesn't even make jokes about a sloth being slow or anything like that. It's like you have a sloth as your killer. There's the first thing you should do is sit down and make a list of all the gags you want to include. And they did none of that. Instead, the sloth is like, typing on a cell phone and driving a car and like doing all these things because they need certain things to happen. And I guess that's funny to a lot of people like the sloth is driving. Ha <laughs> uh, None of it worked for me. I did not like the movie. It's only funny when bear is driving. Now you said this, this was in theaters for one night, one night, baby. Because there's another film coming up that seems as actually two films coming up that seem to be getting one night only theatrical runs for Halloween. And one of them is cozy, crazy. I don't even know what that is. Kissy crazy. (laughs) And then last night I saw the, the, the trailer for the other one and it was some company I had never heard of. And I don't remember the title, but it's one night only and it's fathom event. Um, that was, I mean, that was originally supposed to be Terrifier too, and it did so well that they just gave it a release, basically. But I think that was kind of unique, a unique case of something really catching on. I don't know that we're going to see that again, but I appreciate the fact that we might, and that some of these theaters are taking a chance on indie horror. And cozy crazy doesn't ring a bell. It does not, but my mind is. Uh... I'm I'm not I'm not good. Uh, I got one more horror movie that I watched before October started, uh, and that is from 2007. It's a Canadian horror film called End of the Line, and I just today for Patreon published my list of discoveries for September, 
And I, I fucked up because I didn't include end of the line. And I'm just now realizing, oh, this was literally the best new thing I saw in the month of September. Um, it is a Canadian horror film about some, I don't even want to give too much away. It's about people on a train and a bunch of passengers have little alarms that go off and they decide they are going to do something. And it's kind of a religious horror film. Um, and it, it reminded me of Kevin Smith's Red State, but it's a much, much better film than Red State, if for no other reason than because it has the courage of its convictions. And Red State does not. Um, it's not streaming anywhere. It, it's available on Blu-ray from Terror Vision. Uh, Brad Henderson, who kind of run, used to be with Vinegar Syndrome and kind of runs Terror Vision, was talking it up and they were running a sale on it so you could get it for like 15 bucks. And he was saying this is one of the great underseen horror films. And so I just took his word for it and bought it. And uh, it's pretty amazing. I'm not going to show it at scary movie night because it's kind of a downer. Okay. <laughs> but it's that really reminds good. me though. Um, I also saw bottoms based on. Oh yeah. Uh, Rob's review. Yeah. And um, I think you bottoms... talked about that on the last, the last time. Okay, I, I'm completely wrong with dates my question was yes. why, why did you watch uh, the creature walks among us oh because it was an hour uh i thought you were trying to be some sort of completist with either universal or creature uh i had never seen it and it was like 78 minutes long and i was fascinated by the creature wearing a sweater and i thought well i clearly need to see this because i I think it's the one creature movie I had never seen. Uh, I enjoyed it for what it is. I used to have a 12 inch action figure before I sold everything of that creature with his little burlap outfit. <laughs> and this morning in the shower where I do all my best thinking, I was thinking about you curiously enough in the shower, <laughs> watching creature walks among us. And in the, in the spray of the shower, I did the following deep dive. In Creature Walks Among Us, the creature is played by a stuntman and sometimes actor named Don McGowan. He's not well known. Later, he would be the lead in a movie called Creation of the Humanoids, which is famous because supposedly it was Andy Warhol's fa uh, favorite film. Creation of the Humanoids might be one of the worst films ever made. <laughs> um, it was certainly very low budget. And it all pretty much takes place on one set. It's almost like a stage play. And oddly enough, it has a Blade Runner-like plot about scientists inventing human-type humanoids that are a lot like human beings. And um, But they're all green and they're bald and they have silvery eyes. And the makeup was done by Jack Pierce at the end of his career. And the lead humanoid is Dudley Manlove who you might remember as being yeah, hero of course. in Plan 9 from Outer Space. But in terms of all the useless knowledge I carry around in my noggin, when Creation of the Humanoids was first released on VHS, it was that era, era. with the big VHS box because yeah. it would sit on the shelf and it would take up more space and the art was bigger. And the main scientist in the movie looks nothing like this but on the box art 
they made him look exactly like Christopher Lloyd in Back to the Future, your favorite movie. That's right. And so in seven steps, <laughs> I go from Creature Walks Among Us to the Back to the Future. Very nice. I'll be here till Thursday. Tip your waiters. <laughs> Um, all right, well, let's get into Phantom of the Paradise, which I want to mention before I forget, if you live in the Chicagoland area on October 26, I will be hosting a screening of Phantom of the Paradise at the Tivoli Theater in Downers Grove, Illinois. Uh, not only will you get to see me, not only will you get to see one of the great movies ever made, but you will also get to see JB, who will be in town. I'm coming into town for a number of reasons, one of which is Phantom of the Paradise. And the Tivoli is a beautiful theater that yeah, was built is. a long time ago and yet didn't have any sort of historical fealty to the original uncomfortable seats. So it actually has modern, comfortable seats yeah. Yeah. made for how big human beings are now. Uh, as much as the music box is the happiest place on earth, I think people were tinier back in the 20s. I think it might have had something to do with the Depression. <laughs> um, because when the music box made its decision to keep the original seats and just replace the padding in the backs, that might not have been the best decision. But in any yeah. case, the, the Tivoli is amazing, and I'm so looking forward to that. So... I'm watching it on a uh, Fox movie channel every FMC. night for like a week. Yeah. Um, Cause it's, it's streaming at 3am and there's no commercials and what could be better. And I'm realizing that when I first saw it, I really gave it short shrift mainly because I was watching a horrible print on VHS and it just looked awful and amateur. And then as time went on and I kept seeing it in better and better transfers, that technical schmutz was taken out of the way. It reminds me of Doug Pratt, who edits the DVD LaserDisc newsletter, he used to say this, that there can't be too many impediments. The better the picture, the right. easier it is to enjoy. Sure. And so for the longest time, I was a big Rocky Horror fan, but I sort of poo-pooed Phantom of the Paradise because the two of them are doing – some very similar things if you think about it yeah um but now i'm all on board for phantom of the paradise uh mostly because a the songs are just extraordinary uh when my son was about 10 he used to refer to paul williams as that little elf <laughs> and we found this very entertaining although mean and um he wrote all the songs for phantom of the paradise and in fact I think in two cases, you're, you know the film better than I do. We get to hear the same song done more than one way. Right. And it's sort of amazing yep. that um, I know in one case, it's the Juicy Fruits doing this song in sort of a pop boy band way. Yeah. And then later we hear it the way it's meant to be heard. And it's it's revelatory. And then the film was written by Brian De Palma. And it's sort of amazing how... It's not just Phantom of the Opera, but it's also Faust. Right. It's also Frankenstein. Yeah. And it's also Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It's yeah. very clever. It's not just, oh, this is Phantom of the Opera. Well, no, no, that, that would be simple. It's much 
it's much more clever than that. Well, Brian De Palma does clever well. Um, I my introduction to the movie was in like the late nineties. I didn't even know it existed. Cause again, this is like pre-internet and the nineties was when I fell in love with Brian De Palma because I, I, I think it was because of like something Quentin Tarantino said. And I was just of the age where it was like, Oh, Tarantino's telling me to seek out blowout. I better go see blowout. And I saw blowout and I was knocked out by it. And I saw body double and I was knocked out by it. And I started to dive deeper into to Palma's catalog and he kind of became one of my guys um I still didn't know this movie existed I remember it was a Sunday afternoon I was flipping channels in my tiny little bedroom at my dad's house and came across what is essentially the last scene of this movie the whole weird concert gone wrong um (laughs) and a weird place to start I mean uh, today I was watching it with this in mind, like what if I came to just this scene with zero context and I was so fascinated by the imagery and then Paul Williams, uh, the hell of it starts. And it's this song that like I hear. And even though it's the first time ever I'm ever hearing it, it feels like I've heard it a hundred times. I'm just like, Oh, I, I immediately fall in love with the song. So we have this wild imagery, this song that I love. And then it says written and directed by Brian De Palma. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Because then during the picture credits, there's all this wild imagery from earlier in the film. And I'm like, (laughs) what is this movie? So I had to wait and like look on the guide and it says Phantom of the Paradise. So I immediately sought it out. And I'm going to, I'm going to. I'm trying to remember, I'm paraphrasing myself I, and I don't even remember what movie I was talking about, but it was this turn of phrase once that I came up with years ago that I was proud of seeing Phantom of the Paradise for the first time was like having a director guess what number you're thinking of. And you didn't even know you were thinking of a number. It's like, Oh, this was literally made for me. Everything in this movie pushes all of my buttons and it immediately became like a top five favorite and it has remained a top five favorite for over 20 years. And I've known that for a really long time because I know one thing that appeals to you is although the film is a little arch and cynical about the music industry, the movie itself is not arch and cynical. The movie itself takes its story seriously. Mm-hmm. in terms of the passions on display and what's going mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. I remember there being a, a length of time where it was very difficult to see. Yeah. Uh, before it came out on VHS, it it didn't get shown on television for whatever reason. And um, repertory screenings were, were few and far between. And then it finally came out. And then there were problems with the VHS because it looked like shit. (laughs) Um, It was indiscriminately transferred and it was not good. So I'm comparing seeing Rocky Horror in a movie theater 20 or 30 times when I was in college (laughs) to a bad VHS. And so Phantom suffered in comparison. I still get angry every time I see it that they had to make those changes because <laughs> Led Zeppelin wouldn't let them use swan song. 
And I would like to see it without all the like uh, at the airport when Swan that's, is behind the podium. That's the most egregious one because the logo is literally like wobbling in the frame yeah. because it's superimposed. Other things are like cutaways and stuff. They, you know, they would reshoot the the receptionist at Death Records. They yeah. they reshoot her angle with the Death Records shirt on instead of Swan Song. But yeah, the airport, I'm guessing because they couldn't get the airport a second time because it would be prohibitively expensive. They just slap an optical over it. And it's very obvious. I was hoping that somewhere there was a print with all the swan song stuff. And it's in a vault next to uh, The Day the Clown Cried. Those two <laughs> films are, I think it might be the Disney vault. Yeah. Um, but every time it's put out again, and I'm thinking of the most recent one was a shout factory yeah, yeah. release um it looks great and it sounds great and we can finally judge the film on the film's merits and in some ways it, it might be more clever than rocky horror uh because rocky horror gets a lot of mileage out of the fact that it's pushing buttons with gender stereotypes and and things like that um obviously i'm glad we have both but uh, the most recent time that i watched phantom is one of those cases where, oh, is this available to stream? And I was setting up this new TV and I turned it on to like test it and wound up sitting there and watching it. <laughs> it was, on was the ultimate test of a musical. It was on Shudder for a while. Uh, I don't think it is anymore. Um, and Scream Factory, you know, rather than releasing new titles, have just been putting out their existing titles in 4k oh yeah um they haven't done phantom of the paradise yet and again i'm still trying to stick to my original edict of like i'm gonna try to not upgrade many 4ks minus like a few special ones phantom of the paradise is one that i would upgrade uh it appears to be streaming on the criterion channel currently i'm trying to follow your edict yeah and recently bought the Dino De Laurentiis King Kong in 4K, I believe from Canada. Okay. Someplace, not here. And uh, I literally can't tell the difference. Yeah. I don't understand. Was there $18 burning a hole in my pocket today? <laughs> well, there were lottery tickets to be purchased that day. Universal Monsters lottery tickets. In a way, it's... You know, it's an excuse to revisit a movie that maybe you haven't seen in a long time. It's like, well, I'll spin this and see what the 4K looks like. And as you said, it removes another layer of whatever to stop us from enjoying the film. It's like, well, now I'm going to see it the best it's ever looked. And this is going to be my theoretically best viewing of the movie ever. So there's certainly an appeal to upgrading. I just and I have to can't go there. I think the 4K has a, a audio commentary that's not on any of the previous ones. Don't quote me. because It's I, just I, Dino De Laurentiis saying, they, people are going <laughs> to cry when they see my monkey. But on the 4K, um, the audio commentary is by a gentleman who wrote a book about the making of the film. And he loves the film for any number of reasons. Well, and he sure. really makes it, but he makes a really good case as you watch it for why it deserves uh, to be taken seriously and, and what it does that's good. Because you remember when it came out, people no. were 
<laughs> not kind um, to that con. And I, I believe we did a podcast. We did not to keep shilling for our own shit, but yeah, we did a podcast during COVID, I think. But I, my memory is that we were very fair to the film and we talked about what works and what doesn't. Yes. Uh, Certainly the fact that you're remaking one of the most beloved monster movies of all time puts you behind the eight ball, but you know. Yeah. It, I, I like that movie more than I don't. I like parts of that. Movie. <laughs> I almost uh, it's it's my almost... third favorite telling of King Kong, but <laughs> I almost not wish... oh, not not uh, King Kong versus Godzilla from <laughs> Oho. Um, I I almost wish that robot was in it more because uh, I think he's in three shots, and I I think they should have given the robot some more screen time. When people see my robot, they're gonna cry. Nobody die when Jaws dies. They're gonna <laughs> cry when Conk dies. You know, Conk. Um, it's so been. Did you cry when you did you cry when Beef died? I did not cry when Beef died. I didn't even cry when Winslow died. But it is very sad and tragic when Winslow dies. Um, the joke that I make every single damn time I watch this film is when Garrett Graham performs "Life at Last." I pretend to be Brian De Palma between takes. Garrett, can you go a little bigger? <laughs> Garrett Graham not doing his own singing, but then he is doing his own singing when he's doing it in the shower. And De Palma was like, oh, I should have let him sing it. Uh, there's a lot he has of, a fine singing voice. There's a lot of great lines in this film. But you know what? I think my favorite might be Garrett Graham. Listen. I know the difference between drug real and real real. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but not by much. Um, it's been interesting in the years since falling in love with this movie, a not just finding out that it is this massive cult film where like, there's a whole city in Canada that devotes festivals to it. Um, is that who I think it is? It is, yes. It's my lovely wife bringing me my power cord before my computer dies. Hi, Erica. It's not that I'm disappointed that you're not Rosie. <laughs> there she is. Yay. Um, Three more weeks. Yeah. Um, but also discovering the connections to other films and filmmakers that I love, like... At the time that I first saw this, this was the only movie that I knew William Finley from. And yet later on in life, I go on to discover he collaborates regularly with Toby Hooper, who becomes my favorite director. Archie Hahn, who plays the lead singer of The Juicy Fruits, shows up in every Joe Dante movie, who goes on to be one of my favorite filmmakers. Like uh, De Palma and Dante and, and, uh, and Toby Hooper are probably like maybe my top three. And there's all these crossovers between them. And I don't know if that's coincidence. Speaking of Archie Han, yes. it's done so well. It doesn't really call attention to itself that every band we see in the film is the same. Dressed different. And in right. the case of the final concert, the, the expressionist makeup hides it real well, but Howard, Harold Oblong and Archie Hahn, and they keep showing up as other 
musicians, which yeah. is very clever and and is not um it's not presented as snot nosed filmmaking jests. It's it's really done well and cleverly. Well, and I think it's a little, you know, when we talk about the movies, criticisms of the music industry, that it's this idea that you can sort of plug and play anybody into a specific style of music that uh, they don't need to write their own music. They don't even need to know their own music. It's just like, well, now we're going to sell them as a Beach Boys act and now we're going to sell them as a greaser act. And now we're going to sell them as a like a shock rock kiss alice cooper kind of a thing um and also when when archie han is singing goodbye eddie goodbye yeah as he's singing he does this pantomime of tying off his arm and giving himself a shot of heroin yeah very nice very clever (laughs) and again the the lyrics to that song with little oh for years jake and i used to quote and i don't want to misquote it but the line we shared was, well, you did, Eddie. <laughs> there are references in the song to things that play out in the plot. And it's oh, not, yeah. the movie is, is for as weird and messy as it feels. And again, next time you watch it, just skip ahead to the last scene and pretend you're me dropping in on cable. <laughs> like what is happening? Um, but uh for as kind of loose and messy as it feels, it's very cleverly constructed. Yeah. That sometimes the low budget can make it look a little do it yourself. Yeah. But it's not at all. And I think the key to that, because besides thinking about the creature walks among us um, in the shower this morning, where I do all my best thinking, because I have a tankless hot water heater, so I can stay in there for hours. Um, I was thinking about how great the songs were and how memorable, like you said, even though you're hearing it for the first time, it feels like you've heard it before because it's sort of a deja vu hit. I'm right. Exactly. No, that's exactly. But Paul Williams certainly knows enough about genre and instrumentation and stuff. I know he wrote the songs for uh, Bugsy Malone. Yeah. Did he write all the songs for the Muppet movie? Uh, Yes. So Rainbow Connections, Paul Williams. Yep. My God, he's written a lot of really famous songs. I mean, the Carpenter songs and all yeah. the other stuff. Um, the other day, this cable channel I like because there's no commercials was... Fox Movie Channel. Which, I again, I believe Spectrum got rid of because that was part of the Disney <laughs> arrangement. Um, now when you put on FXM, there's a screen that says, we're sorry, is part of ongoing negotiations. For us, it was WGN for a while. They were showing the Barbara Streisand, A Star is Born, uh, which is not a good film, but it's one that I'm obsessed with. And of course, he co-wrote Evergreen with Barbara Streisand, and that was the big hit from that movie. Um, Watching it again, I was reminded that they tried to get Elvis to play the Chris Christopherson part, and that would have been fascinating. But the more I thought about it, I think I wrote a column about this, um, Barbara Streisand should have played the over the hill, washed up alcoholic rock star. And Bruce Springsteen should have played the up and coming kid who she helps. That would have been something. I like it. I don't see that movie getting made. Uh, cause I don't see Barbara Streisand agreeing to that at well, that time. 
because John Peters was busy teaching people how to say her name. <laughs> Streisand. Streisand. <laughs> say I need it, to rewatch Streisand. that movie. That movie's so good. Um, again, every time I watch Licorice Pizza, and I've watched it several times <laughs> on home video because I have the little shiny disc. In fact, I bought the soundtrack on vinyl. It's very entertaining. Um, there's that shot in the end credits because he does picture credits with the it's hammers or axes yeah, or something. Yeah. I so want to be in the movie. That was is in he, all the trailers too. Is he threatening the gas station to give him gas or he's going to destroy the, what is going on in that little tantalizing scene? I want, this is the only time in my life I've ever said this. I want more Bradley Cooper. I like Bradley Cooper. I uh, stars born really turned me around on him. Cause I was like, Oh, he's, He's a lot more talented than I give him credit for. Well, I think he should still be in movie jail for Nightmare Alley. Sure. I'm hoping that his get out of jail free card is the Leonard Bernstein film. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> I've heard mixed things, but we'll see when it goes to Netflix, like all the Bernstein's, other movies we want. Bernstein's to see. children were happy with it. Well, then <laughs> what could go wrong? The members of Queen were happy with Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh God, I still remember. I think it was, um, I think it was on the Twitter machine where someone suggested that Bohemian Rhapsody is edited like no movie on Earth has ever been edited because it was in the contract that the three of them had to have a similar amount of screen time. Right, and to demonstrate this, the person posted a scene in the film which is edited in a way that makes no sense in terms of what's literally going on in terms of the narrative until you realize, oh, they all had to be in the scene for the amount. Right. Crazy, man. And until Oppenheimer, it was the highest grossing R-rated movie of all time, the highest grossing biopic. I don't remember what the statistic was, but whatever it was. I don't remember that film being particularly R-rated. Uh, no. It's, you know, they hint at some homosexuality, but they're too afraid to, like, actually deal with it. Um, but Oppenheimer dethroned it. So thank goodness. I'm still waiting for the um, second director's cut of Bohemian Rhapsody that was completely filmed by the Rocket Man guy. <laughs> uh, As so I said on the podcast before, when Rocket Man came out, it was like, oh, this oh, is what right. that would have been if you had... Yes, but Rocketman guy, whose name is Dexter Fletcher, this year directed a movie for Apple TV starring Chris Evans and Ana de Armas that doesn't exist. It's called Ghosted, and it's one of the worst movies of the year. So I don't know if Dexter Fletcher is the guy. I agree, Rocketman's really good, but Ghosted is so bad that it leaves uh, a, a bad taste in my mouth. And in your mind. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. Yes. Phantom of the Paradise, I feel like, is the movie. I, I remember, and I, I think I've told this story on the podcast before, because we did talk about this movie once 11 years ago when we were doing our series of our favorite movies. Um, and this was on my list. And I might have told the story then because the first year would have been like 2011 that we did my birthday thing in this house. I showed Phantom of the Paradise and I remember it ended and it was the first time Doug had ever seen it. 
and he turned around and he said, why do you like this? And I couldn't really answer the question. I remember I was there at that screening. Yes, you were. I don't, I mean, there's lots of reasons why I like it, but I also think it's a weird kind of a shorthand where if you know me well enough, the fact that I love this movie makes sense. Oh yeah. And if you, if you gave me a second, I could put it into words. At first I thought it was the elements of the film that had to do with performance, but I don't think that's it. I think you go for a movie where emotions are being expressed fully and unambiguously and unironically in a way that maybe makes some audience members uncomfortable because it is so nakedly true and in that artist's heart. Okay. There's a lot going on in Phantom of the Paradise about the nature of art Mm -hmm. and the nature of love Mm -hmm. and why we do these things and the things that can get in the way of being able to do them. And like I said, even though it's really funny and cynical about the music business, it's not funny and cynical about what drives human beings to want to express themselves and make art. And I think that's what you're responding to. Okay. Very well said. Thank you. Cause I couldn't put it into words. My, my tiny hat, my, <laughs> he does have a tiny hat, everyone, because I'm a little gentleman. My question to you is what is that movie for you? Well, it's a musical and I love musicals and it's got great songs. Great. No, I'm sorry. I, I, I asked the wrong question. I want to hear what you love about it, but what is the movie that like you would point to that you would say, okay, if you know me well enough, you would understand why I love this movie, but most people might not get it. Okay. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I didn't ask it the right way. That, that what I meant was you're getting what I just said out of Phantom of the Paradise. And perhaps I'm there because it's a pastiche of classic sure. horror that I enjoy. It's very um, much a pastiche movie. Um, I avoided it for years, but I finally sat down and watched Hugo again. Okay. And I think it might be Hugo. Okay. There's something going on in that movie. And maybe your kids saw a little bit of it when we were at the Academy Museum. Yeah. And I was looking at the early motion toy exhibit for the first mm-hmm. time. Because yeah. the first time I went to the museum, I missed it. <laughs> um, whatever it is, it's exactly what you said 20 minutes ago. I feel like he made it for me. Yeah. And I'll admit, it's based on a children's book. The first hour is just filigree. But once we finally get to Melies. It's sort of astounding what I think Scorsese's trying to convey. Um, And it just, I just find it devastating. Um, Both All of of that is added for the film, right? I haven't read the children's book, but is George Melies in the book? No, he he's, I believe he's in the children's book, but it's a very minor. Okay. I mean, when you get to the last half hour of Hugo, the movie, 
it's all about him and that he he thought he had destroyed all of his prints and um thanks to pirates and other technical esoterica we now i think we now have about 90% of his films wow and and obviously part of that was that for decades i showed his films in class and that sort of endeared them to me sure and right before we moved his granddaughter did a thing at the music box and i talked to her after the screening and it was you know um you know i thanked her i tried to find the words for what her grandfather's work meant to me yeah um So that was cool. Yeah, um, very cool. So yeah, if I if I just had to pick one off the top of my head, I'd okay. say it's go. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm just I'm kind of interested in that phenomenon where it's like it's not even necessarily that it's your favorite movie, but it's oh, the I'll, one that's like the shorthand to. I can talk for hours about its flaws. Sure. Um, I also wish it were a musical. Okay. Um, in, you know, in a weird way, it sometimes seems like a musical that's had all of its musical <laughs> just the fancifulness of the recreation right. of France and all the different characters and how they intersect. Um, another great Ben Kingsley performance. My God, how many times has that guy swooped in and given a supporting performance? That's so much better than um, not just his Melies and Hugo, but I'm also thinking of his vice president in Dave, yeah, that's an amazing performance. Yeah, and I think he's in the movie for ten minutes. If he wouldn't make as much crap as he does, uh, his legacy would be more valued. Man's got to work. <laughs> no, I I don't disagree. But when you're showing up in like Uwe Boll movies, you're uh, you're damaging your legacy. Um, if I knew that more people were going to be at the screening on the 26th, I would try to organize a Jessica Harper dance contest where everyone could take a turn doing the Jessica Harper dance. But I don't think we'll have enough of a turnout to make something like that work. I was hoping that at least a couple people would see this as an opportunity to cosplay. And certainly the Tivoli has those long aisles mm -hmm. where you could easily do that dance Anyone familiar with the film knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> Fling the hat. Do your wild dance, Jessica. There are gifs of it, too, for those of you who are curious. Um, did you, at the end of the film... Maybe I'll cosplay as Philbin. Um, I was reminded last week that the actor who plays Philbin is in Mean Streets. Okay. He is. And... I've always found his character interesting because the entire enterprise is really stylized and the actor playing Philbin is sort of giving a seventies method performance <laughs> in the middle of this rock and roll fairy tale. It, it really, and maybe De Palma meant that because the character is meant to be coarse and right. sticking out like a sore thumb. Uh, maybe I'll cosplay as Philbin. Just need a denim vest. 
It was interesting because I was watching it today with Erica and when Phoenix first goes to audition, she kind of gets pulled into a room and thrown down on the couch and Philbin's going to, you know, pull a casting couch on her. And Erica was like, oh, my gosh, I don't remember that at all. Like she didn't remember that beat of the movie that it's sort of that um, on the nose about what the casting couch is. And, you know, uh, and because later uh, there's all those women in the bed. Yes. And there's this talk of, well, we never got a chance to sing. Right. Right. (laughs) It's not coy. Um. At the end of the film, when uh, when the chaos is going on and we get those sort of handheld shots of uh, the Phantom running down the hallway and as Cape is flowing out behind him, do you recognize those shots from Hot Fuzz? Because Edgar Wright steals those directly in Hot Fuzz. He's a huge I, Phantom of the Paradise fan. I have never made that connection. Yeah. Uh, in terms of similar connections, um, I can report this from the Corman screening. When you watch Rock and Roll High School, there's a scene in Riff Randall's bedroom where she smokes a joint and the Ramones appear. I love it. Say, it's my favorite want, sequence in the movie. I want you around. Yeah. And um, it's very well done. And she looks out the window and the drummers in the backyard. And I won't spoil the joke, but. I would like to think I get most movie references, but this was beyond my ken. At the screening, Riff uh, Arkish pointed out uh, that if you screen the movie, the girl can't help it. There's a sequence where Julie London sings Cry Me a River to uh, the main character. And he said it's shot for shot. Oh, no way. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't spun... A girl can't help what's available on Criterion, so yeah. I just have to grab it. I haven't spun it yet, but I, I believe him. Yeah. And now I want to watch it. Well, who's the actor? He was later on Beretta. Um, I don't remember. Of- he kind of sucks in The Girl Can't Help It. I mean, he's fine, but like he's not my guy. And I want to love that movie so much because of he's Jane in the Mansfield. Seven Year Itch, too. He always yeah. played the, that, the I'm not, I'm not, every man. I'm not a fan. Um, I'm looking oh, it up. Tom, but. Tom Ewell. There it is. Thank you. And uh, I will do that tonight before my head hits the pillow. I will spin Cry Me a River from The Girl Can't Help It and see if Arkush is embroidering the story. But I have a feeling that except for Julie London not being in the shower, um, that's where he got it from. That's pretty funny. Oh, and the next time you watch Rock and Roll High School, this is well known. Um Arkush exhausted himself and was admitted to the hospital. And so Joe Dante stepped in and finished the film, including the title number. So if you're watching the film and the girls are cavorting around the gymnasium and you suddenly say, this film suddenly seems and looks different. Well, there's a reason for that. And that's the reason. I knew that Joe Dante had shot some of it, but I didn't know which sequences specifically. The the screening the other day really showed how much they worked on each other's films because Arkish did second unit on Grand Theft Auto, and I believe Dante edited it. Yeah. Yes. Aside from the the sort of pastiche of it all, um, I mean, there are things that are very clearly De Palma, but for me, like I come to De Palma 
in the 80s, like the later 80s, when he's like this serious guy, when he's making The Untouchables and he's making Casualties of War and Bonfire of the Vanities, and he's sort of this serious A-list filmmaker. And so to go back, I, I, I struggle with some of his like earliest movies, Hi, Mom and Greetings. And those are the two I was thinking of, but he sort of leaves the comedy it's sort of swept behind the door. He's certainly not known for his sense of humor, starting with Carrie or actually sisters. sisters. Right. He, I mean, he comes back and he does wise guys in the eighties and bonfire of the vanities is meant to be a comedy. It's just not a very funny one, but not that he directed wise guys. Yeah. Um, But to look at Phantom of the paradise, it does feel out of place with a lot of his filmography. It makes sense. If you start with the early, like, counterculture hippie comedies and you build up to phantom of the paradise but to absorb De palma the way i did and then to go back and see it it's like oh what was this guy up to in the early 70s that he's in such a different place i i can still see a lot of him in the technique obviously there's that amazing split split screen bomb sequence where he's doing touch of evil and there's well and um, i was thinking that that's the that's the de palma that's the famous de palma to come Right. The split screen sequence, which is amazing, especially on a low budget. He just doesn't often seem to be having this much fun making a movie. And I would argue the Phantom of the Paradise achieves something that's very difficult. um, That it's at once a satire of something and its own thing. Yeah. It never just becomes jokey. Right. Oh, the Phantom of the opera is so quaint no it it's capable you're capable of sitting down and investing yourself in the story even though it's filigreed with knowing nods and winks which has always been one of my defenses of like a lot of tarantino films that yes he's pulling from this place and this place and this place and this place but i think if you synthesize enough of those and then filter them through a unique voice, it becomes something worth investing in on its own, as opposed to just a mashup of references. Yes. That's I I would argue. I would argue that De Palma has a, a great sense of the audience as does Tarantino. Um, I, I will not try everyone's patience too much, but one thing Amy Holden Jones said at the Corman screening was that Roger used to say, um, it has to have jokes or sex or violence. One of those three things. And Holden Jones said, in time, she came to think, well, if you think about it, isn't that Tarantino's entire ovure? Yeah, I mean... Minus most of the sex. He's a largely sexless director. Hmm. Right? I mean. Yes. (laughs) Robert De Niro and Bridget Fonda get it on for a few seconds in Jackie Brown. Oh, but that might be the. Right. But that's maybe. Sexiest sex scene ever made. That might be the only sex scene he's ever shot, which I'm fine with. I'm not saying his movies need sex. Patrick, that's rutting. (laughs) <laughs> sorry um anything else about phantom of the paradise you want to talk about well obviously if you've sat through this podcast and you haven't seen it yet 
you need to. Yes. But of course you can't because your cable system has removed the F- FXM channel because of their agreement with Disney. And now you can't see it at 3 a.m. without commercials when you can't sleep. Bummer. I'm sorry. I'll tell you what, if you live in the greater Southern California area. 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 Um, I will come to your house with my Shout Select disc. And um, I will sit down and watch it with you if you make me some popcorn. <laughs> uh, Shout Factory, if you're listening, please put this out on 4K. And while you're at it, please put out a remastered soundtrack because I have this soundtrack on CD and it sounds like dog shit. It is not great. I remember being so happy when I discovered on Amazon that you could buy the CD. Yeah. But it is really in need of a remaster. Very much so. Uh, Thank you for talking about one of my favorite movies with me. Everybody, please come out if you are able to and you live in the Chicagoland area. Come out on October 26th at 7.30 p.m. at the Tivoli Theater to see Phantom of the Paradise on the big screen. I realized this will be my fourth time seeing it in a theater since falling in love with it in the late 90s. So it does show with some frequency because somehow I've managed to already see it three times on the big screen. Um, but thank you for listening. Please keep it up with the scary movie challenge reviews, seven words. Every time you watch a horror movie in October at fthismovie.com, uh, where you'll find more great movie and horror shit every day in the month of October. Thank you to Doug for making our new artwork and our banner and changing stuff over. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, follow us on Twitter at F this movie. We're on Patreon, patreon.com slash F this movie. And we're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. We're on Instagram. We're all over the place. And you can email us at F this movie podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, JB. We're Listening to FS Movie.